The book dream inside you cannot wait. Never before have so many people questioned, what do I really want to be doing? For a lot of us, that means writing a book. Long deferred dreams, pandemic pause, and the solitude to make them happen means the time is now. The mechanics of book writing can seem mysterious, but they can be broken down, as can the logistical minefield of getting published. You need skills of the craft, but also practical advice from experts who've navigated the path. What's the arc to becoming an author? The value and peril of agenting, conducive editors, the formats to publish and ways to promote. We'll speak with writers, agents, editors, teachers, coaches, publicists, publishers, resources, and guides to navigate the way for those of us brave enough to bring our story to life. Drop in to your book dream and begin to make it real. And now, here's your host, Diane Dewey. Welcome to Dropping In, everyone. It's Friday the 13th, and far be it from superstitious, I've often felt it's a lucky day, and especially lucky when Anne Hood drops by. Anne's latest amazing release is Fly Girl, published last week by W.W. Norton. It's set in the tailwind of the golden age of air travel, when flight attendants were the epitome of glamour and sophistication. A fly girl is not far from an it girl, and that's pretty close to what you were, Anne. It's my favorite book of yours, as is each <laughs> that I have read when I finish them. <laughs> that's sweet. Thank you. <laughs> it's true. Kitchen Yarns, She Loves You, Yeah, 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 The Italian Wife, The Book That Matters Most, Morning Star, Somewhere Off the Coast of Maine, The Red Thread, Comfort. The Knitting Circle, An Ornithologist's Guide to Life, The Obituary Writer, and Knitting Yarns. Welcome, Anne Hood. Great to have you with us. Thank you. So great to be here, Diane. You know, there's a very undervalued activity in our world um, that is collecting experiences, uh, seeing the world, being nomadic. It all gets a bad rap in favor of performing um, and in, in terms of, you know, gaining a career when you're young, you listen to yourself. You needed to, to see the world and, and in a way escape your, your reality where you grew up in a mill town um, in Rhode Island. I, I wonder if you just speak to us about the activity of collecting experiences. Oh, what a, a what a wonderful question. And I could talk the whole hour about it, but I won't. <laughs> you know, I feel like even back then when I graduated from college, 1978, and even more so, I think today, we're so adamant about pigeonholing young people so quickly. You know, my daughter, Annabelle, just went through the college tour and acceptance process and the schools that talked so much about what kind of job you were being trained for were the ones I kind of dissuaded her from. I said, you have to figure out who you are, you know? And I think what you're talking about, Diane, is exactly that. You go out into the world, you have experiences, you see places and meet people so unlike the place you come from and the place you live and the people you surround yourself with. You see how people do things in Greece, or France, or even New Orleans, or San Francisco, <laughs> you know, every place offers up so much to enrich our lives, uh, that I think it's too bad that we don't 
urge people more, young people more, to have experiences that will help them find their path. It's an education. And let's not leave off being young, right? I mean, it's still a need, right? right? <laughs> and as mm-hmm. a writer, as a writer, um, you know, because it's it's informed your work. And you talk about, you know, being on board this airplane, airplane suspended above the earth um, with a pack of strangers. You're hearing things, you're, you're hearing stories. How, how did that kind of impact your your desires, your your methodology, your way of crafting a story, and your feeling as a human being? Wow. It, 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 the impact is almost immeasurable. I mean, on the most basic level, I learned, because the schedule was so erratic, I learned that if I wanted to be a writer, I had to make the time to do it. I couldn't do the old, you know, not so great advice, you have to write for X amount of hours in the morning, you know, that very specific, rigid advice. I mm-hmm. wrote when I could, you know, I, I worked for three days away from home, lugging my, my novel or my short stories um, in notebooks, handwriting them. So it taught me, number one, adaptability, which a writer needs. You know, I absolutely believe that. It taught me to listen what a gift that is. I don't think we really listen that much to each other as closely as we could, but I would be sitting in the galley on international flights. You know, we had done the service and in those days it was just one movie, a screen kind of dropped down in different places throughout the 747. The movie was over. Everyone was fed and tucked in. The lights were dimmed and I could listen to people talking. Um, it's, I, I always found it fascinating how people bear their souls in a dim, dimly lit airplane. Mm-hmm. There's something about strangers talking to each other, about families coming together, about uh, people on their way to weddings or on their way back from funerals. You know, I say in the book, and I've said it so many times, life happens on an airplane. And I mm-hmm. feel like I was an eyewitness to that unfolding. Absolutely. And being that witness, witness is is insight into human nature. I mean, I do think, you know, we do speak to strangers. Of course we do. We've nothing to lose. We're, we may never mm-hmm. see them again. We won't see them again. And the other thing I, I think about when you talk about this dimming the cabin lights, which is an intimate atmosphere in the first yeah. place, like a theater, like a movie theater. And if it's me, I've, I've just gotten over crying over the movie that's played anyway. So I'm, 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 I'm there in an emotional, an emotionally vulnerable state. I mean, yeah. what better than to talk than to talk to your neighbor? And I think there's just a lot of layers there. Um, like when you talk about, and, and truth be told, I've I've taken um, seminars by Anne Hood. They are a gift in and of themselves. And but I always wondered um, how you could carry around in your mind plots, characters, things you were developing for your next projects. And you'd say to us, you know, I've got the opening line to my next story in my head. And I'm thinking to myself, how does she carry everything in her head? But then (laughs) adaptability, being a flight attendant, you probably had to carry these stories for days before you could write them down. That's absolutely true. I mean, it taught me skills that I didn't realize would be useful both as a writer and just as a person in the world. 
you know, but that is one of them. I, I couldn't always just have an idea pop into my head and sit down and write it. It might pop into my head when I'm, you know, behind a beverage cart serving 300 passengers cocktails. So I can't stop then. <laughs> so, but it was, lo- it was lovely because I could run it, you know, and I, I try to teach these things to new writers. I would run a sentence, one sentence over and over in my head, take out of a comma, change a, a lazy word, just get that sentence just right. And that is the value of time, you know, of being able, in a way, not being able to sit down and write, but being able to think. And I, mm-hmm. I feel like we rush too quickly to the page often. And you're hearing it. You're, you're hearing it in your mind if you're repeating that line yes. over and over. And that's something we're not really taking a lot of time for either in, in, in the rush. I, I really feel that, um, you know, I, I can just see you doing that. And I, I wonder about the idea of, you know, salvaging snippets and all of this. It's, it's also part of this idea of kind of slowing down, not making yourself be on a track on the thousand word a day track. Um, I think it's just, it's just such a sort of heavenly thing. Um, But since you mentioned the stray comma or the weak word, let's focus on that comma for a second, because there was a way in which I was looking at the title fly girl. And I thought of it Mm. with like (laughs) comma fly girl fly girl. And then I thought, no, it's a fly girl. Of course, we're supposed to know what that means. It's a girl that's flying. But uh, I, I couldn't resist. I, I looked it up. And in faith, a fly girl is a woman who's made a commitment to progress. She rises above mm-hmm. limitations, whether they be from society, circumstances of her own self-doubt. Um, and I wondered, is this is this relevant? Um, I found it to oh. be such a, a story that's so empowering, a dream catcher tale. I wondered if this was yeah, relevant you, to you. You know, Diane, it's so funny because you have absolutely hit on why I love that title and why I chose it. So um, back when flight attendants were called stewardesses, but I mean way back, like before World War II, they were often collectively called fly girls. You know, just the women who worked on airplanes were fly girls. Then there's a fly girl, as you just beautifully described. And then there's the implication of that comma. Fly girl, go, soar. And I wanted all of those to be implied in that title. So the obvious one is, you know, just I worked on an airplane. And then the second definition, as you described it, and then even above that or beneath that, I guess, is the idea that it is a book about how such a job empowered a young 21-year-old me, to be confident and poised and independent, um, to learn how to take care of myself to the point where by the time I stopped flying after eight years in 1986, I could walk into any room, any situation, any city in the world and make myself and other people around me feel at home. And that's a gift. And that is a gift as a woman because Women have certain vulnerabilities, as we know, when we think about foreign cities or parties. You know, you don't always go in feeling like I can handle anything that should arise. But after eight years as a flight attendant, that's how I feel. And it's carried with me. It never left. Mm -hmm. You know, I've traveled around the world with just my little kids, you know, when when they were teeny. And I never felt 
threatened or worried. I knew I could handle whatever it was. I knew I could figure out this was before Google Maps and all of that. But I knew how to ask for help. I knew how to just be in the world. And that's a gift. Comfort. Comforted being in the world. Comfort in your own skin. Being comfortable in the world. I mean, the irony, Anne, is that you got pinged a lot for this decision to become a flight attendant. You might <laughs> still be getting. You might still be getting pinged a lot. <laughs> and 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 the and the thing of it is, the irony of it is, it teaches you this fundamental sense of self mastery, this fundamental sense of competency. So there's the irony, right? Like the joke is on us for. Mm-hmm. Somehow belittling, or, or you know, because it's a service job, that you know, this is an extraordinary gift, and the comfort, the comfort within yourself, um, does that? I mean, how does that impact you as an author in terms of being able to take uh, risks? Well, definitely. I mean, all of us who sit down in front of a blank page, you know, metaphorically, now it's a computer screen, but who sit down before a blank something to create a story. Um, there is a huge amount of bravery in that act. And mm-hmm. if you're not comfortable with risks, um, I don't know how you can get through the process of writing revision and holding your breath as it goes out to agents and then editors. There is a lot of talk about being vulnerable, right? Writers are, put themselves into the most vulnerable positions all the time, every day. And it seems like a weird comparison, but that's kind of how I felt every time I got on an airplane. Anything could, and I would have had, did happen. And you had to be prepared for that. And so giving that, that sense of, of taking risks or being in a vulnerable situation every time you go to work, As someone said to me the other night, I was in conversation with someone and she said, I'm just wrapping my brain around the fact that 22 year old women are in charge of saving the lives of everyone on a 747. You know, I'd never Mm -hmm. thought of it that way, but isn't that interesting? That's why Mm -hmm. we're on those airplanes really. And they hire you as young as 21 and you have this amazing responsibility so the people who kind of um, demean the job or the people who take the job um, really aren't being very thoughtful or aren't being very aware. Yes, we're there greeting you at the door and we're taught to smile and we're taught to be friendly and kind. That sure serves us well in the world in general, right? Um, yes, we're the ones throwing bags of peanuts at you on a short flight. Um, we're the ones who were hired partially because of the way we look and the way we talk and the way we act. But we're also the ones who have done things like save lives with CPR or the Heimlich maneuver, um, evacuated hundreds of people in plane crashes. There's an amazing story of an Eastern Airlines plane crash in the Everglades in the um, late 60s. And no lights, none of the emergency lights worked, and they were in the Everglades. And the flight, it was was right around Christmas, and the flight attendants led the passengers, the survivors, in rounds of Christmas carols so that the rescuers could hear them, but also to keep those survivors distracted and optimistic. I mean, that takes thinking, you know, quick thinking. How can these rescuers find us when we have no lights? We can use what we do have, the power of voice. 
Um, so, you know, to, to belittle the occupation or the women who fly it is really, it really gets me kind of angry. And I sure heard it, Diane, you know, it's in the book. You know, you went to college to be a waitress. Yeah. Heard that many times. Yeah. Please. Um, yeah. And, you know, I feel like with Fly Girl, okay, we've come a, a far, it's a far cry from coffee to your meat. We're, we're experiencing this, um, this, this profession and this experience at far greater detail and levels of um, understanding and awareness. And it's about time. I, I think it's really admirable that you took on this challenge, um, not surprising perhaps, but you know, when you talk about the 22 year olds, the fearlessness that we inhabited at that point, maybe that comes into mm -hmm. play. But the other part of it is the rigor. You went through really intensive training that's mm -hmm. described in here. I think people underestimate that greatly. And you're, you're really not unaccustomed to being referred to as a nerd, right? Because you were the kid in class raising your hand with the answer and you took this seriously. You studied, um, you were even disparaged for it because peer pressure says, mm -hmm. oh, you know, never mind, don't worry about it. You worried about it. You took it on. You, yeah, you, you were that right. concerned person. So, you yeah. know, you, 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 you're accustomed to this, Anne, who better than you to, to, to try to, you know, reverse our thinking on this. Um, as you know, I, that's so lovely, Diane. I really love how you explained that or described that. Last night I did an event at a bookstore and there was a woman in the audience and she was smiling at things I said in such a way that I suspected she had been a flight attendant. She was older. Mm. And so at one point I said, and I try to do this every time I'm with a group, you know, was anybody here a flight attendant? And of course her hand went right up. But when she came over to get her book signed, she was actually teary. Mm -hmm. She said, you have given our career, our job, the respect we deserve. You know, flight attendants fought for change for women before other companies and other movements did. They were at the forefront because when they were first hired, they could only fly till the age of 32. Mm -hmm. They fought to lift age discrimination um, against women. They, taught, they fought to be able to keep their job when they were married, something that was the same in businesses. You know, once you got married, you couldn't be that secretary anymore in many companies. They fought for that. They fought for um, being able to be a mother and still have a, a profession. And it mm -hmm. took decades to win all of these fights. So they've been on the forefront of the women's movement for, for so long, yet people still can feel comfortable stereotyping them as, you know, bimbos or sex kittens or waitresses. It's a convenience of thought. It's a way of, you know, some sort of smug superiority that is so inappropriate any longer. Now that we've gone through COVID and understand what nurses do, you know, yeah. it, it it feels like a corollary because it's gotten far more dangerous and dramatic in the skies and we rely. And maybe that's part of it too. People don't feel, they don't want to feel vulnerable. They don't want to feel like mm -hmm. my life isn't, they don't want to feel out of control. We're used to being right. in control. So it's right. a lot, you know, it's a lot, but that sense of respect and that sense of what went on in those days and how far you've traveled, so to speak, it's all in this book 
Fly Girl, a memoir by Anne Hood. We have to pause for a commercial break, but when we come back, we're going to continue dissecting this from a writerly standpoint, from an experiential standpoint, from a humorous standpoint. I mean, Anne. (laughs) Kissing the passengers as they left first class, the male passengers, because who else was there? I mean, really, and the miniskirts and um, this, the stripper outfit that was, you know, oh, there's some real classics in here. So there's there's so, so much. Um, But we are going to um, pause it here. We'll come back and we'll continue the conversation. Zany, fun and Altogether too tender and serious with Anne Hood. Don't go away. We'll be right back on Dropping In. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. She Writes Press is an independent publishing company founded for women writers everywhere. Together with sister company Spark Press, serving men and women, it is both mission-driven and community-oriented. The aim is to serve writers who wish to maintain greater ownership and control of their projects while getting the highest quality editorial help possible, traditional distribution, and an in-house marketing and publicity team. In 2019, She Writes Press was named Indie Publisher of the Year. You can find out more on SheWritesPress.com. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to Diane at DianeDewey.com. That's Diane at DianeDewey.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Anne Hood, uh, a gifted storyteller from, uh, according to People Magazine, and certainly all of us who have read your books, Anne, um, about your adventurous years as a TWA flight attendant, Fly Girl is named one of spring 2022's most anticipated books by Apple and as well it should be. You mentioned, you know, a woman coming up to you at a book talk and with tears in her eyes. And I I have to say, I've literally never made it through any of your books. And I mean this in the (laughs) best possible way Um, with without tears in my eyes. Fortunately, um, I could talk to Andre Dubus at the last Writers in Paradise that was in person. And he said, yes, he had to exit um, the, the hall where you were speaking and go out and have a good cry. So I don't feel alone. I don't feel alone. There are, you know, Anne Hood's stories, they operate on, on many different levels. There's the actual, sometimes funny um, story that's going on. And then there's the poignant quality of it. And then there's just the beauty of the way that you deliver it. And, um, and, and I, I wonder at times, um, you know, when you talk about, for example, in Fly Girl, there's beautiful scene. You're coming out of the clouds. You're on a descent. You happen to be in the mm. cockpit because you've been invited there, but um, by the pilot, but I, this sort of transcendent moment when you talk about the blending, the crucible of earth, 
sky, strangers, humanity. It's all mixed up mm. and it's all mixed up at once. And mm. it is that it is that knack of, of seeing how these things really are jumbled up in a way. I wonder if you're emotional when you write these scenes. Oh, first of all, thank you. Those are such kind words. Um, someone did say to me once that they should attach um, uh, a box of clean, a little package of Kleenex on all my books. Yes. <laughs> I thought that was a good idea, maybe. <laughs> um, you know, I don't fall in love with my own writing very much, um, but I do sometimes actually cry because I've unlocked an emotion. Do you know what I mean? Like yes. I'm trying to describe something beautiful or, you know, in this case, uh, what you described about that landing in that 747 on a December night um, into Kennedy airport. Um, that's when the word awestruck is really applied. I mean, I was just blown away to the point where I, I remember it clearly and to write about that. And, you know, of course, it's revised and you're trying to get it just right. But when you do get it right, you you're kind of feel that you got it right because it's unlocked some emotion in you um, that you didn't even realize was, was you, that you were harboring. Um, mm-hmm. So, yes, it's not at the, at the writing itself or the act of writing, but the consequence of having gotten it right can make mm-hmm. me feel that awe or that pain, or that joy, you know, whatever the emotion might be. Mm-hmm. It's fully inhabited. It's not an abstract process, writing about these things. I, 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 think, that, I think that appears, I think that's delivered on the page. Um, and, I, and I also want to go back to something you mentioned, which is really key, the bravery of, of memoirists. This is a memoir. Mm. It, fully yep. factual account. Um, and, you know, I think about other memoirs who have done the same kinds of things, transporting us to moments of, um, of, of poignancy in earlier times in their life. I'm thinking now about Cheryl Strayed and, and being um, so, you know, impoverished at a certain point that the mm-hmm. only thing to do was to shoot her beloved horse. Uh, yeah. Who, who, who became an aged kind of liability in the family. These are not proud moments. These are moments that, if we're really feeling the shame of it, get swept under the, under the rug. You are brave, Anne. You talk about decisions that you made midair. You might not make those same decisions again. Mm-hmm. And revisiting that person that you were, maybe... You can attach labels to it. Maybe you can say naive, but is there a sense of compassion or, I mean, forgiveness is a strong word, but like a sense of understanding her anew as a, as a result of writing about her? Oh, there's so many, so many levels to this wonderful question, Diane. The first being, if a memoirist isn't brave and doesn't go to the tough places, number one, I suspect the memoir won't be published. But number two, a reader sees through it. A reader thinks, what is she holding back? Is something not right here? You know, and I feel like that comes through on the page. I can't tell you how many times in a workshop I've taught, I've, you know, sort of taken a writer aside or in a conference with a writer and said, this, you're not telling the truth here about your dad. 
or you're not telling the truth here about what you did that day. And I, by truth, I mean emotional truth. I don't mean the facts. Mm-hmm. And that asking the question can help the writer unlock it. But eventually, if you're writing memoir, you have to learn to unlock that yourself and to be willing, brave and willing to do it. Uh, the other thing I think of when you ask this question is one of the things I'm most embarrassed about was the day on a 747, um, I was working in first class, and part of the first class flight attendant's job is to serve dinner and, you know, coffee or whatever to the cockpit. And when I went in to get their drink order, the, the captain asked for two Jack Daniels. Yeah. And, you know, I was young, but not, I mean, I knew that was wrong. It wasn't like I was, you know, uh, but I, I was, it must be a joke. I remember thinking that. Well, he's joking. That's not a funny joke, but he's joking. So I took the other, the flight engineer and the first officer's orders, and then I turned to him, like, you know, ready, and he said, look me right in the eye, and in the steadiest voice, to Jack Daniels. Mm. And so I said, I can't, I can't do that. And I left the cockpit. My heart was pounding, mm-hmm. and I didn't do it. You know, I brought the other drinks, and then I watched him walk out and just get them himself. And then get back behind the co- you know, into the cockpit. Um, I can't believe that I didn't tell another flight attendant. But I didn't. It was like I was too afraid. Afraid of what? I mean, it was scarier to be. I held my breath on that landing. I can tell you that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, you, you look back because in a way, a memoir of a time four decades ago. Um, I'm writing almost about a character. Yes, it's me, but it's a person I had to get to know again, a person I had to learn about. And, you know, you said forgiveness is a strong word, but I think it does apply. Mm -hmm. You have to forgive not just yourself, but the characters around you. Mm -hmm. And Fly Girl doesn't have many villains. You know, I mean, I guess Carl Icahn was one for running the airline into the ground and and forcing a a labor strike. And I guess, Mm -hmm. you know, advertising agencies were kind of villainous in how they used uh, women, you know. Um, But there aren't real villains. But in other memoirs I've written, and certainly others I've read, there are villainous people. And I don't think you can write about them unless you forgive that. So interesting. Forgive everybody, and including yourself. It's, it's, yeah, yeah, because otherwise maybe you're not really looking them in the eye is what you're saying, right? You're not really in the heart. (laughs) <laughs> or in the heart, or in the heart. Um, and yeah. I, I think you just, you also mentioned something there about, you know, forgiveness. And and it's really about context, too. I mean, everyone, anyone who feels um, smugly self-superior about, oh, I would never do that thing. Mm-hmm. Um, people, it was the 70s, the late 70s, early 80s. Mm-hmm. W- women were running around in bunny suits. Um, you know, <laughs> you let's, said it. <laughs> let's put this in perspective here. Um, the notion of being supplicant or having your boobs dropping out of your outfit. I mean, these were, that was de rigueur. I mean, that was sort of a daily event. And, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, this occupation is a microcosm for what was going on in the world. And of course you would question, do I, you know, I can't report an authority figure. You, you yourself were on probation. You were in your right. first six, six months of the job. 
people were getting, you know, fired. And the ratio of, of getting, tell us, remind us again, the ratio of people getting flight attendant positions exceeded that of getting in Harvard, right? It's some incredible, yep, that's right. it's some incredible that's thing. Right. So you were, and you were up there. I mean, to even um, have like sort of pacifist, <laughs> passive resistance and not serve the pilot and allow him to get it himself, at least gave him that pause. Um, and you did make a mini statement there. So I'm, I'm still giving you a lot of, a lot of credit. <laughs> thank, you, you, thank you. Judgments. <laughs> of, you know, how would you know what you, you would do in that, in that, you know, in that instance? I, I also found another touching aspect and really it's, it's so interesting because you, you often talk about it in seminars when there's a very hot subject, a very emotional subject to describe it in a cool way. And I, I think right. it's really important to, to, you know, allow that um, to come across here to readers and maybe we'll get a chance here to read actually um, that, that, you know, you, it's not a sappy novel. I mean, a sappy memoir at all. It's not even really sentimental, but there are certain things like the artifacts that people leave on the plane. Um, the guy that left his Marshall Fields bag with the Christmas presents mm. for his entire family. Uh, Tom, Tom Hanks talks about this, like walking down the street and seeing little leftover things that people have left, you know, when they're uh, squatters, you see the chicken bones and like one glove. Yeah. And, somebody's shoe yes. or something. Um, and you can't help but construct stories from that. Uh, right. You, you, you constructed narratives about people based on things you, you saw. Um, and how does it's, that inform your writing? Like the telling detail, the leftover you know, bag of business gifts. Such an interesting observation, Diane. I, you know, you say that in about the chicken bones, the Tom Hanks uh, quote or, or, Content. I have been so struck walking down the street in New York by how many masks I see throw on the sidewalks. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, when would we ever have seen that? It's just such a reminder of what we've come through. You know, looking, and I looked at, you know, just you used to find a, a old Metro Pass or, you know, something that's fallen out of someone's pocket, but I see so many discarded masks and they still give me the chills when I see that. Um, I feel like as a flight attendant, I never learned the end of stories. I only saw mm -hmm. the beginning. Uh -huh. um, you know, it, we stopped. When the person got off the plane, we don't know what, they, what happened to them. Did they get the job? They told us they were on their way to an interview. Did that person forgive them that they were traveling across country to see? We don't know. I once interviewed um, the illustrator, uh, uh, Chris Van Alsberg, who wrote um, The Polar Express and Jumanji. Oh, yeah. And he's, an, yeah. and he's a trained artist, and he does sculptures. And I was struck by a sculpture of the Titanic just when it started to tilt. Not, not when it sunk, or not when people were aware that it was sinking. And a, another one of a woman about to go over Niagara Falls. And I just noted it. And he said, I like to capture the moment right before something happens. And that really struck me. And believe it or not, I think about that. With that was the opportunity I was given. 
Um, and that's left me to finish their stories in my mind. The Marshall Field Bags was a, a man, I don't know the history of it, very nervous, very sad, on his way to see his children for the first time in years for Christmas. And there were delays and weather and he had to switch planes at some point. And when we finally took off and we finally landed, there those Christmas presents were beautifully wrapped in those Marshall Fields bags. Mm-hmm. Um, once I had an entire wedding party, all the bridesmaids on their way to a wedding. Um, and the, there were so many delays, they missed the wedding. But I remember when they boarded, because they were kind of giddy, you know, and laughing. They had their gowns in those big, those bags, you know, that the zipper bags. Yeah. And um, I remember thinking, boy, I would have left the day before, because what if we get delayed? When you fly every day, you know that happens. It can happen, right? A lot. Mm-hmm. And in fact, it did. And they missed the wedding. They got off the plane. I'm like, what happened to those people? What happened to the bride? What happened exactly. to the get? Did they get married without any of her friends there? Did they wait? I mean, it's just, you don't know once they stepped off the plane. Um, a, a lovely woman boarded in a white wool, like, an, uh, like a winter white wool suit, this beautiful suit. Mm-hmm. I commented on how beautiful it was. On her way to a job interview in San Francisco, the final interview, she would be moving from New York, you know, across the country, excitement wants the job desperately and the passenger before her in her seat had left a dirty diaper under the seat. So when she picked her bag up and dragged it across the floor, put it in her lap, she was covered with the dirty diaper contents on her white suit, sobbing Mm -hmm. and got off the plane. And what did she do? We don't know. know. They were picking her up at the airport and we'll never know. I often think now that I'm you know, talking so much about these experiences, maybe she's out there. Let me know. Did you get the job? How did you handle it? You know, what did you do? We're, we're rooting for you. We're rooting for you. I mean, and, do, and, and don't forget about like lost luggage and how you could be in the wedding oh. party and, and actually not have the garter or maybe even your dress or, you know, do people get married without their dress? Or um, we, don't, we just don't know. But, but that's life, right? These are. That's right. These are real life situations of coping and um, wow, the ins and outs, the ups and downs. They say mm-hmm. that they say that traveling is the best way to get to know someone. And you're, here's you with hundreds of people being their most unguarded selves right in yeah. front of you. Um, it's really, uh, it's not surprising that you see the most unvarnished version of people um, as themselves. We have to pause here for a commercial break. It's so lovely talking with Anne Hood about this book, uh, Fly Girl, a memoir. As we said, it's multi-layered, and we're going to continue to uncover those when we come back. Don't go away. We'll be right back on Dropping In. America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Books Forward exemplifies excellence in book marketing and promotion, representing New York Times bestsellers, national award-winning books, and books that catch fire on social media and in the digital realm. Books Forward creates ambitious campaigns with unlimited possibilities for sparking buzz while creatively cutting through the noise. 
Your book deserves to launch with experts who have set the bar in the industry. To learn more, visit booksforward.com or send us an email at info at booksforward.com. A JKS Communications Company. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to diane at dianedewey.com. That's diane at dianedewey.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Ann Hood. And rather than describe the indescribable, we're going to ask Ann if you would please um, dip into Fly Girl here. Let us take wing with you. And um, just it's this, this passage. We're going to Paris and off we went on page 145. Let's get to hear it from your voice even better. Thank you. Yes. So one of the perks of the job, of course, is not only did I get to travel with free tickets, but my parents did too. And so this is um, a reference to that. The first trip I took them on was for my mother's birthday. We went to San Francisco and that was in my early in my career, but they continued to fly for all of it with me and alone for the rest of her life. Long after I stopped flying, my mother would talk happily about that first trip to San Francisco and how my own wanderlust and job as a flight attendant had changed her life too. It seems almost impossible, looking back, that my mother had turned just 48 that September. She lived almost another 40 years. The last trip I took with mom was for my Italian book tour. She was 80 and suffered from a botched hip replacement, so I splurged on first-class tickets on Alitalia. With each course set before us, mom looked at me sadly and said, it's not as nice as it used to be, is it? She meant the quality of the food and the service, I think, but it feels to me now that she was talking about so much more, life without my father, the three of us young and healthy enough to walk the hilly streets of San Francisco, hop on and off a cable car, and stay up late talking in our hotel room. So beautiful. I I also think there's so much, you know, that stands in. You don't have to say we were sad. We were, you know, we were, you know, it's nostalgic. You, it's that whole thing of, you know, showing, not telling. And for writers, mm-hmm. I just, you know, I, I hope that you hear that. And it's really, there's conciseness to your words, Anne. And, you know, I wondered if you were always, well, <laughs> can you tell us about <laughs> The dumpster edition. <laughs> I mean, I was going to say, were you always like, this, this, this able to to be concise and um, oh, no. clear? So let's hear oh, it. Let's let, let's hear uh, the gory I, details. I will confess, but I want to give this tip to the writers listening in. I always give this advice: go through your manuscript and find every sentence that is I was followed by an emotion, or he was followed by emotion, and highlight them. And after you've gone through the whole manuscript and done that, change them and show the emotion. Uh, It's Mm -hmm. such an easy thing to fix and make better and stronger. Never tell us how someone felt, including yourself, but show it to us, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I, I wrote the worst first 
happily unpublished novel. I spent years on this thing. It was called The Betrayal of Sam Pepper. And in it, I, I made every mistake that a beginning writer needs to make to get better. You know, you need to do this stuff. I, I, I'm always urging new writers, don't beat yourself up. You're learning. You're going to do it better next time. You know, you, without making these mistakes, you can't get better. And so, number one, it was a revenge novel. Someone I knew had slighted me, you know, in, in, not in a big way, but I was just so angry about it. So she's the villainous, you know. <laughs> and the name I chose for her rhymed with her real name. <laughs> you know, these are terrible oh. mistakes. Hmm. But, we most, wouldn't have but most importantly, I think, is I let the influences of everybody I read, you know, seep into the, the story in my own writing. I, didn't have, I couldn't find my own voice yet. And so if I read a Raymond Carver story, I wrote a chapter with very minimalist, you know. And then if I read, reread an F. Scott Fitzgerald story, oh, my language was so lyrical and lush. And it was the most uneven um, novel ever written. Luckily for me, I have always been my worst, best worst editor. In other words, I am not afraid to really cut things, throw things away. I, I, I'd rather do it to myself than have others do it to me. And so I really learned to be quite critical with my own work. And I sat down one summer day in my tiny studio apartment on Sullivan Street and started reading this thing. And I don't think I got more than 50 pages in before I knew no one would, would publish it or should publish it. And I tossed the whole thing out, the whole thing. Yeah. Into the dumpster it went. Um, okay, Into well, the dumpster. Yeah, I mean, do do, do unto yourself before. <laughs> I, I, I think it's yeah, such exactly. a, it's just such a great, I, I just love the idea of heaving. Um, what was your, you know, your all your sacred cows or all your darlings in there. Um, and and so great. And what an enlightening experience. There's no there's no trading that experience, right? Seeing yourself. You know, I, totally. I, mean, I felt so liberated. In fact, I am liberated enough that that very day I sat down and typed a page of a new story. And that is the page word for word of my first novel somewhere up the coast of Maine. So writing that dreadful three or four hundred pages, I mean, it was a lot. Reading it over, first of all, writing it and writing it, you know, not very well, and then reading it in a place where I knew how bad it was, freed <laughs> me to write something good and better. Oh, absolutely. Somewhere off the coast of Maine is a great novel. I don't even qualify it with the word first. It's just a great novel. I and oh, thank I you. And there there I thought I'm shameless with flattery. I don't I you know, but it's it's I'm being objective actually because I do feel your voice in it. And so this elusive concept of voice, you know, you, you went through imitative voices, being Raymond mm -hmm. Carver, Carver, being, you know, Virginia Woolf, being all these, it's lots of fun, like trying on clothes or something. But, you yeah. know, in the end, you got to find your own, right? You're, so when, right. You, when you talk about voice, how, how do you define it? I mean, how do you oh. define it as a teacher? How do you define it? Such a such a tough question. I think I sort of do it like with ne negative capability. I can tell when someone hasn't found their voice or if they're imitating and just try and trying again and again, because your voice is in there. You just have to allow it to emerge. And if you haven't yet been published or recognized 
or reviewed well by your peers or a teacher, it is hard to, again, we keep talking about bravery, don't we? It's hard mm-hmm. to be brave enough to try something. You know that it worked for Virginia Woolf. <laughs> you, know, you, right. you know that that voice did okay for, for uh, whomever. Um, so it's very hard. But I think the way you find it is by making mistakes. I think very few people sit down and their voice. I mean, I can think of a few writers who published wonderful books at the age of 21 or 22. Their voice somehow was able to come out, you know, young and fresh and new. But for most of us, I think it just takes a lot of time. Um, try, like you said, trying on clothes is a wonderful analogy. Um, mm-hmm. And one day you look and say, yeah, this is how I want to look. This fits me. This suits me. Yeah, um, this, is, this is me. Yeah, this is me. I did it. I finally found it. Yeah. And it can be the simplest thing, you know, um, mm-hmm. this, this, this risk taking, right. You're talking about risk taking because you're, you're, you're talking about like kind of getting out of your own way and, and just letting what's in there come out and, and not be afraid yeah. because of the, the perfectionism, but oddly it comes out in a way that's really more perfect than anything. I think also and when I read Anne Hood, I, I, I always come away feeling that you embrace the foibles, the imperfections, the weirdness. Um, is that true, or is this just yeah. my? Uh, is this your outlook? I mean, please tell me. That, I mean, yeah. Really, yeah. Okay. So, how does that infuse your writing, inform your writing? You are one hundred percent right because I, I heard someone say once, and, and long enough ago that I don't remember who it was, but no villain is completely villainous. And no hero is completely heroic, which is just a way to remind us that everyone has flaws and everyone has cracks. And for me, I like, I like finding those because that's how you develop and and write a full person, a fully blown human is to show them in all their weirdness, their lovable weirdness, (laughs) sometimes Mm -hmm. maybe not so lovable, Uh, but I think that's how you create a character. Um, That's how you avoid sentimentality. Yeah, for sure. That's that's very cool. I mean, it does bring to mind. Sorry, Anne, the scene where you drop. I think it's like a Bloody Mary into the white habit of a not <laughs> nun who is flying on the plane, and I'm thinking to myself, clumsiness. It's it's such an endearing trait. I mean, you also call it on yourself, right? Not just other people. Yeah, yeah. You know, Dan Jones, who's the editor for the Modern Love section in uh, the New York Times, in the Style yeah. section on Sundays. <laughs> Um, I've, I've had several essays published in Modern Love, and once he gave me this advice, um, because I was not doing what he, what he suggested, he said, when you laugh at yourself instead of others, the reader's always on your side. Yes. And I, that stuck with me. Yeah, you know, um, with that nun, it, it's so funny that you brought that up too, Diane, because my friend, who I flew with for years, and then he continued <sighs> to fly for American Airlines for 35 more years came over, flew in from L.A. because I threw a dinner party recreating the first-class dinner from 1978. <laughs> and, uh, this is great. Oh, yeah. It, and he came in to serve with me. So we had a, a trolley that we wheeled around my dining room table <laughs> and we served the oh. drinks and the food from it. <laughs> but he remembered that event of me spilling that bloody thing on the nun in the white habit. Uh, you know, yeah. And I said to him, why is it that anybody in the middle seat who's wearing white, just something's going to happen? I mean, it's just like an accident waiting to happen. 
Exactly. And the guy in the window asked for a Bloody Mary, and I said, oh, no, I am going to spill this right on that nun. And I did. And she was not a nice nun. <laughs> no. No. I don't think she liked that you called it a dress either. I think there was that. That's right. No. <laughs> She's quite insulted, as she should have been. <laughs> Well, come on, you know, it's life. Talk about forgiveness. Where's it supposed to be coming from, right? You know, <laughs> here's your chance, Don. You could have done it up and you could have done it, you know, us proud. We only have a couple minutes left. And I, I just wondered, Anne, um, you know, you, this idea that, you know, arrivals, departures, going places, even having the perspective of 30,000 feet off the ground, th- these, these, this need to roam, to explore and kind of, getting back to that idea, even mental journeys, but such as this book, which is a real, a real fun journey. I mean, are you getting back to that now? Do you feel more fully yourself now that you're able to travel again? And it relates oh, somehow. Diane. To fly. It relates <laughs> I mean, to Fly I, Girl, right? Uh, yes. I mean, I am nomadic and I have to, I have to say that there was no better time to write this book then when we were locked down and I was, I wasn't even going to the grocery store, right? We would have our boxes outside the door for two days and like wipe everything down. But every day I sat at my computer and I wrote about this time when I could, and I did go anywhere. And it was really very good therapy for me. Like it helped me from, you know, from going like losing my mind with fear and, and confinement. Yes. And so last, uh, last October, in between the Delta surge and the Omicron arrival, this little window opened where countries started opening up again. And I saw a, a fare to Madrid for $186 round trip. Right. And I looked at my husband and I said, we are going to Madrid. And we took Annabelle, we went for just Columbus Day weekend, that long October weekend, five days or four days. And had, a, like, I felt like I was coming alive again. Yes. Like, I'm sitting in a tapas bar. I'm yes. looking at things I've never seen. And I was like, oh, thank you, world. <laughs> and thank you, Anne Hood. That's tapas, not topless. It's not, we've come a long <laughs> way from I'm Cheryl Fly Me. Um, the, book is, the book is Fly Girl. Thank you, Anne Hood, for being with us. And happy Thank Friday. You, Thank you. Some big virtual hug. Thanks to our engineers, Matt Widener and Aaron Keller, to Ryan Treasure, to our executive producer, Robert Cialino, and most of all, to you, our listeners. Remember to stay safe and take that adventure. Till next week, thank you for dropping in. Thank you so much for dropping in. Please join Diane Dewey again next Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you then.